Welcome to week two of our exploration of creationism. Uh, this is a companion series to our Genesis series right now, and I'm showing you why, as a, a literalist of the Bible, uh, that uh, I believe the earth was created in six 24-hour solar days, as the Bible says, at face value. I believe that that is a, a statement that's made in the Bible that can be defended. Uh, I think that uh, anyone who reads the word uh, ought to take that position. Uh, I do want to clarify for you that this is not a primary issue. Uh, this is, it doesn't define whether or not you're a Christian. So if you're, if you're a Christian who doesn't agree with this, that doesn't mean you're not saved. But I do think that it's an incredibly important issue. It, uh, it reveals uh, your regard for the Bible. It re- reveals how quick you are to say that it means what it says, or it must be wrong because the world told me. Uh, I think that it's a, it is a huge issue. It doesn't define your salvation, but it, it reveals your, uh, your whole perspective on, uh, on what God's word means and, and how you treat it and, uh, and how easily uh, you might come and say, it, it, the world must be right instead of the Lord. So, uh, you know, you, you come to moments in, in the Bible where uh, quite impossible things happen. Jesus walks on water. In the book of Matthew, I think that that actually happened. There's no scientific explanation for it. It happened. Um, I think that you can say scientifically people can't walk on water, and I agree. And I admit that even though that is scientifically impossible, I believe Jesus did it. And I think that that applies in so many other ways. I believe Jonah was in the belly of a, of a sea creature, uh, what the Bible calls a fish, what we might call a whale. Um, even though it's a, a mammal, is not a fish, I, I get it. But, uh, you know, something swallowed Jonah, and he was in it for three days. I believe that that's a defensible claim. I think that that is true, and I think uh, the story of James Barkley back in the, I think it's the 70s, is, uh, is good evidence of the, the actual possibility of that taking place. And I think God is constantly proving that he's greater than the laws of nature. Because he's the one that constructed them. So when he says that he constructed the universe and its laws in six days, I think that it means he did that in six frames of time. That would be the equivalent of days. Even if he created days, uh, if, he, if he worked in days prior to there being a sun and a moon. Nonetheless, we have to scrutinize our understanding of the Bible with what we know to be verifiably true around us, right? Um, as believers. We know the earth revolves around the sun because of the scientific advancements and and discoveries in history. We know that to be true. Uh, And the Bible doesn't say that the the earth revolves around the sun. The the Bible, much like our vernacular today, uses terms like sunrise, sunset, to make it sound like the sun is going around the earth. Um, Scientifically, we've proven that's not the case. We have the right orientation. We have the right understanding. Uh, and and I don't think that that's a moment to to show that the Bible is scientifically inaccurate all the time. I don't think so. I think that uh, what that shows us is that the Bible is written from the perspective of its human authorship. When it was written thousands of years ago, the you know human authors didn't have an understanding of the solar system. They they had no idea how that worked, and so uh, they would write as they saw the sun rose and the, the sun set. And I think that that language just shows that it's from the perspective. At the same time, when Moses writes from his perspective, he's saying it took six days. That's what it would have been to him. I don't think it's billions of years. I don't think that, uh, that that's it at all. From his perspective, he understands that it was morning and uh, there was evening and morning, and, and then that was the first day, and evening and morning, and then that was the second day, etc. 
Well, uh, I'm going to try to do this with, with the, uh, in this series. I'm going to try to show you that science proves nothing to contradict a six-day creation. Uh, we have yielded way too much territory to evolution when we really don't need to. And uh, much to our shame, I think that too many Christian uh, leaders and churches have given ground to, uh, to naturalism and, uh, and have allowed that to seep into the teaching of the church and, and influence the way that they present uh, the book of Genesis. Um, and I just don't think that naturalism should be accepted even on scientific grounds. Churches, preachers, um, by incorporating that kind, of, that kind of teaching into their theology, they, they s- syncretize with, with godless theory. Uh, and they bring that into the gospel. If you can't trust Genesis, you can't trust the Bible. If it's wrong about the beginning, then you have every reason to believe it's wrong about its outrageous claims about the Messiah. It's wrong about its ridiculous claims about how everything's going to end. If it is proven that it's wrong at the beginning, then you ought to conclude that it cannot be trusted reliably in the middle or the end. So it's sad to me how the compromise of Christian leaders only emboldens the watching world to say that the Bible is wrong. Today we'll tackle two issues. Uh, It's a continuing conversation. The the first issue is just going to be carrying on from last week. You know, I gave you this big mathematical uh, model to show you the, uh, the statistical improbability of Uh, of something mutating beneficially into a 200-part system. Well, I want to talk about naturalism. And uh, I should say, by the way, that this series is not aimed at uh, at convincing an atheist that creationism is true. That's not really my my goal. Um, My my goal is to speak to Christians and to say that if you believe in the Bible, the Bible speaks of a literal six-day creation, uh, and that is the only accurate way to understand it. Otherwise, theologically, you compromise everything. The whole... The whole thing falls apart if you don't get the beginning right. That's what I truly believe, uh, and I think that most Christians haven't come to realize the severity of the issue. But I do need to deal with naturalism to some extent. I have to talk about evolution and stuff, and so I want to spend some time just exposing how ridiculous evolution and naturalism is. I want to get that off of our minds so that we can just move into the, the creation account. So let's start with the implausibility of evolution the implausibility of naturalism, right? The greatest absurdity to evolution is the issue of DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid. Uh, that's the chemical encoded information in all, all our living cells, right? One-celled organisms like amoebas and complex multicellular organisms like human beings, we all have DNA in our cells. Every living thing has a completely different DNA code. And Darwin didn't know this. Charles Darwin uh, had no genetic study when he when he wrote uh, the Origin of Species. He, there were no uh, there were no studies or findings or, or or thoughts about chromosomes or about DNA or any of this kind of stuff. No one knew. Every everything he described at that time was based purely on what he was seeing with his eyes, and he barely believed his own view. But it was uh, it was based on what he saw with his eyes. All of the genetics about information uh, storage and retrieval, all of that stuff, it was unknown to him. From the color of a flower or the shape of a body or the behavioral instincts from the beginning of life, all information is contained in DNA. 
And genetic codes of higher biological organisms can consist of about one trillion bits of information. And these determine nature and growth and development and death of billions of cells uh, inside the organism. And they, they service a trillion cells. They diagnose defects. They repair them. They enable cells to reproduce. And all of that's information. It's all chemically encoded information inside the cells. And the question is, where did this information come from? Did this information occur, uh, occur randomly? Like, where did, you know, where, what caused all this information? Because we're getting into something called information theory. A, mon a monkey has monkey DNA. Uh, the genetic code of DNA and the chromosomes keep making the monkey behave like a monkey and keep growing as a monkey and staying a monkey. There is no code to turn a monkey into something else. There's no code to turn a monkey into a man. There's no such thing as jumping out of your species. For a time, scientists thought that polymers were these transitional elements, but the more they studied it, uh, those were for repairing. That's all, all those were for. They were for preserving the organism as it is, not changing it into something else. So there is no transitional uh, element. There's no transitional ingredient or anything like that to change one species to another. You just can't do that. The information is too precise to have evolved from out of nowhere. It's, uh, it's way too intricate. Pretend you wrote a, a poem. Let's, let's go with the short poem, okay? And the poem will go like this. Roses are red, violets are blue. Will this poem evolve into something new? That's our poem. Four lines. You type it out on your computer, and you save it just as a, a text file, right? You don't have any bells or whistles, no, no formatting or anything like that. It's just, a, it's just a text file. Roses are red, violets are blue. Will this poem evolve into something new? That's your poem. Now, take that file, make a copy of it, and then paste it into, the, in, into a new folder or into the same. It doesn't matter. Just, just sit there and copy it and paste it and do that. Now, whenever you copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste, there's like a one in a million chance, and I'm just making that, that number up, but there's like a one in a million chance of an error happening when you, when you copy, paste, right? I don't, I don't know what the actual statistic on that is, but that's being generous, okay? So let's go with those odds. Let's go with one in a million. Let's say there's a one in a million chance of losing a letter or adding a number or a letter or a punctuation or a space or, or skipping to the next line or something like that. Like there's a one in a million chance where one small alteration will be made to the text, right? Now you keep copying your poem on your computer billions of times. At what point has it made enough errors to have changed from the, the poem that you wrote Roses are red, violets are blue, that four-line uh, poem. At what point has it made enough errors to change from that poem into a perfect copy of the Bible? English Standard Version Bible. Will it happen? Reason would tell you, of course not. That will never happen. Like the errors will not, uh, will not accumulate in such a manner as to get it from that four-line poem into the English Standard Version complete Bible, all 66 books. What if I said you had 10 billion years to try? Will it happen? Still no. Now, look at how evolution takes that and says that the, the one in a trillion, 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 trillion chance that any mutation is going to come about and turn something from this small thing into maybe a functioning 200-part system inside a, a cell. L imagine 
taking that and then saying that that turns into a complex one-celled organism, and then that, like an amoeba, and then that turns into a, a, a multicellular organism, and then that, that turns into a human being, and it also turns into all the millions of species on the planet to have ever lived. How many times we just keep getting lucky with rolling the dice, despite the ridiculous statistical probability? With information theory, if, uh, if one-celled organism is going to evolve into a man, it has to gather so much information. It has to figure out how to make kidneys and livers and four-chamber hearts and cerebella and stuff like that. You know, Where does this information come from? And the only answer by naturalism is accident, by chance, as if chance were a force. But chance is not a force. Chance is not a, a, a thing that makes things happen. The cohesive operation of the cells in our bodies allows self-reproduction, self-sustainment, and self-repairing. We have never been able to build a machine that does that. Like we can, it's incredible how fast we can blast particles in, in you know, in collider machines and stuff. It's it's crazy what we can do with quantum physics and the technology that's that's now at our fingertips. And yet, we can't build a machine that will self-reproduce, self-sustain, and self-repair. If we could make a machine complex enough to reproduce itself and sustain itself, it would always be in disrepair because of its complexity. We've never been able to create a machine that can do what every living organism does. If entropy is true, then all matter is breaking down. Things are getting worse, not more complex. And you can... You can claim that, you know, well, entropy, that only works in closed systems. You know, you can claim that our planet's not in a closed system. There's energy coming in from the sun constantly feeding us. And so entropy is still happening. Energy's moving to chaos, but more energy's still coming in. Fine. Go with that argument. But isn't that also the case with your computer being plugged into the wall, gaining electricity from a power plant? So your computer's not a closed system. It's got energy feeding into it. Does that increase the likelihood that your four-line poem is going to turn into a version of the Bible? Of course not. Add as much energy as you want. That's not going to do it. To create a primate brain, you need matter that didn't exist inside a single-celled organism. You need matter that wasn't contained by a single-celled organism. You need matter that wasn't even nearby that single-celled organism. So how did it evolve that matter? How did it evolve those elements? Where did the materials and the ingredients come from? How did it become part of the cell? Inorganic matter would have to assemble huge numbers of bits of holistic information before synthesizing an amoeba. How did that happen? The human race has now achieved the knowledge and capability to clone certain animals, like rabbits and sheep. And people will say, see, we can clone them, so you know that proves evolution. And I think that's the opposite. It proves that you need an outside intelligence acting in order to do this, to orchestrate this event. Put a sheep in a pen and tell it to mutate. Put a rabbit uh, in, in, a, in a cage and then tell it to have a clone. It's not going to happen, right? You, you can't control it. But it, when, when you bring in your understanding and then intelligently apply your design, you might be able to do something. But by, by uh, commanding it to happen by accident or by chance, it's, that's not going to happen. You need something, someone with an understanding of genetics to work on that creature, to create a clone, etc. You never find something on the ground like a watch or a battery or a paper airplane, something even as simple as that, and then wonder how it evolved. 
right? You, you never find that. You, you know that someone has created it. You know that someone has given it a body. I want to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 38. It says, But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. It's talking about a, a, you know, a wheat. Uh, God gave it a body uh, as he chose, each kind of seed its own body. Verse 39, For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Now, this is a radically different claim on the origin of the universe, and the origin of the world, and the origin of life than evolution. And that's not even Genesis 1. This is 1 Corinthians, right? You can't just pretend Genesis 1 is poetry and symbolism, artistic language, and the rest of the Bible is just, you know, it doesn't even think about it. The rest of the Bible rests on Genesis 1, builds off of Genesis 1. So here in 1 Corinthians 15, which is where we're being told that we will be resurrected with new bodies, a future literal event that will happen instantaneously, it's in that same passage that the Apostle Paul is saying that God has, has created different kinds of flesh. Created. One kind for humans, one kind for animals, one for birds, one for fish. They, one didn't come from the other. Each was made according to its kind. It's been a century and a half since Darwin published his theory. About 150 years. A little over 150 years. So we've had over 150 years of intensive efforts and biologists still have failed to validate his theory in any significant sense. Nature is not the continuum that the Darwinian model demands and chance is not a credible creative agency of life. Quite the opposite. Uh, the more science learns about complexity and harmony throughout the universe, the more science learns about design and intelligence. There's, uh, there's an increased amount of thought thinking that the Earth is now the result of an, an alien experiment. Some extraterrestrial being must have come and caused the events of, of life to occur on the Earth. And no one wants to, to point to God, so someone just says some, some, other, some other living being. The more, uh, the more probably mathematical, reasonable, scientific answer... Scientific? The more probable, mathematical, reasonable, scientific answer is that some external cause has designed this universe to come into being. Now, the, the right question isn't whether or not a god had created the universe, but rather which god had created it. The, the uh, conclusion, when you look at the universe and its, uh, its fine-tuned, cohesive nature, its order and its, uh, its harmony... The, the deduction should be that there was a designer. And so the question should be, who designed it? Which is the designer? Here's our answer. John 1.1. 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Then Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What is seen was not made out of things that are visible. That's not where we came from. We didn't come from, from other primates. 
Evolution is liberating, of course, because it eliminates God. It eliminates God's commands, the, the commands which restrict uh, sinful behavior, particularly free sexual behavior. Evolution is democratic, right? Every man, uh, every man is his own source of moral judgment. There's no God involved, no moral standard, no law. There's just kind of a majority vote. Evolution is tolerant since it allows a belief in any God you want except the one in the Bible. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 said this would happen. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Evolution is precisely that. Replacing the supernatural with the natural. Exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's what evolution is. That is precisely the thesis behind evolution and naturalism. God's judgment on people who spout that damning message is at hand. His wrath is revealed against it. Well, that's that's enough for, for naturalism. Um, there's more that I want to say, and maybe I'll, I'll get to that in coming weeks. But uh, I, want to, I want to just get to something in the Bible. I want to answer the question, how old is the earth then? Right? If, if this series is going to be um, a, a pre- presentation of a young earth theory, uh, to a, a young earth understanding how young is the earth by comparison to billions of years how old is the earth what does the bible actually say if you were to take the bible seriously and say that it is actually true and it means what it says then how old is the earth right that's a that's a very fine question because the bible actually can provide that answer if you just look through the uh, several chapters of the, of the Bible. I'll show it to you. Okay? Uh, how many days did it take for God to create everything? Six days. On the sixth day, he created the first human beings. Right? Adam and Eve. Well, at least he created Adam. We don't know how long it took for him to then create Eve uh, after Adam was created. But let's start with the first human being is Adam. Okay? So the universe is five days older than the first human being to ever live. Because he, he was born, or he was created, I shouldn't say born. He was formed on day six. Okay? Now, the book of Genesis records a number of genealogies. And one of the most important of these genealogies is found in chapter five. So, uh, G- Genesis five records the genealogy of ten men. Okay? It's going to be Adam and then nine of his descendants. It's going to go down his family tree like that. Uh, and the list will end with the important figure of Noah. Right? So it'll go from Adam to Noah, and, uh, and it's, it, I'm just going to read the first few verses, and then I'll kind of skip to the end, okay? Uh, chapter 5, verse 1, and we'll just display the whole chapter up for you. This is the book of the generations of Adam. 
When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So notice verse 3, that he lived 130 years, and when he was 130 years old, so this guy could live a long time, when he was 130 years old, he had a son named Seth. Verse 4. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. So he lived 800 more years after that. That means he lived a total of 930 years. Okay? All right. Uh, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were, eight, uh, were 930 years and he died. Okay? Verse 6. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan, etc., So you see that it's going to say, here's a guy, and when he was this old, he had this son. And then that son, when he became this old, had this next son. And this son, when he became that old, had this next son. And that's what it's going to do all the way until you get down to uh, verse 32. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay, so that's the genealogy in in, uh, chapter 5. Each genealogy has a number of factors that are uniform. You know, you, you have the name of the man, how old he was when he had that uh, certain son, the son's name, how much longer the father lived after that, the fact that he had other sons and daughters, and then the total number of years he lived altogether, and then the fact that he died. So all of those things are stated about each of these men in the genealogy. The genealogy ends with Noah and his kids, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? And so Shem is the first of Noah's kids, right? Well, when you get to chapter 11 of Genesis, you have... Shem's genealogy. Here's what it says in in Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arkpashad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered uh, Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah, etc. Right? You you go on and on until you get down to verse 26. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor and Haran. Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Okay? Abram is, is the one that, uh, will, that the book of Genesis will focus on. We have come to know him as Abraham. Abram, Abraham. Okay? So that genealogy goes from Noah, uh, his first kid, Shem, all the way down to Abraham. 225 years. Okay. At that point, you can look at Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, to go from Abraham all the way to Babylon. And then there's 430 years. Uh, you know, that's, that, by the way, is going to be comprised of 430 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, 7 years conquering the land of Canaan, uh, 350 years of Judges, 110 years of united monarchy under Saul, David, Solomon. And then you have uh, the, the civil war. They break off into Ju- Israel and Judah, and there are th- uh, 350 years of divided monarchy between them, and then 70 years of captivity under Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar and other rulers. Uh, then they return to Israel after that and 140 years of rebuilding and then 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and New Testament and then you get to Jesus. That's the hard way to go from Abraham all the way to Jesus. The easy way to get from Abraham all the way to Jesus is to look at Matthew chapter 1. The genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 says, uh, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, 
and Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, etc., etc., etc. And then you get all the way down to uh, verse 15, let's say. And Eliad, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So this genealogy goes from Abraham all the way down to Joseph, who is not Jesus' biological father, because Jesus didn't have a biological father. It goes to Joseph, who is the husband of Mary, Mary, who gave birth to Jesus. Jesus was born of a virgin. Mary had no biological father, right? So those are all the relevant genealogies that we need for now. If we calculate the number of years from Adam to Noah, which you can do if you just read Genesis 5 and just, just do the math, just it's regular addition, you come up with a total of 1,656 years. 1656, okay? From Noah all the way to Jesus is 2,348 years. If you add that up, when did Adam live? 4,004 B.C., approximate. 4,004 B.C. Adam lived approximately 4,000 years before Jesus. Well, how long ago was Jesus? Well, from us, the year right now is 2021. So Jesus lived 2,000 years, 2,021 years ago. If uh, you put that together, how old is the earth? 6,025 years old plus five days. Right? So, look, I, I can already feel how crazy that sounds to people who grew up being told that the earth is billions of years old. I can feel the flood of questions that, that's going to come into the brain. Because I had the exact same questions when I was coming to faith. Right? I, I mean, I, I wasn't always a believer. And I had major ob- objections on this. The, uh, the essay, uh, I wrote an essay in sophomore year of high school on creation and evolution. I was arguing for evolution because I wasn't a believer. Uh, and that, was, that essay was used uh, as my personal statement to apply to the UCs, the University of California. And that's how I got into UCLA. That, that essay about evolution was, uh, was just copy-pasted into my college application. Not by me. I didn't apply. But uh, I started off with plenty of doubt. I, just, I thought, you know, you learn something in science class, that's fact. And I look at the Bible and I go, what in the world is this? The earth is only 6,025 years old. That doesn't make any sense. That sounds ridiculous. Here's why this matters, okay? God's word is explicit on this. The numbers are right in front of you. So here on this issue, you, let me first ask you the question, is that what the Bible says? Does the Bible, if you add up all those numbers, does it turn out to be approximately 6,000 years old? You can't get away from that answer. You can't intellectually, honestly get away from saying, yes, the Bible makes that claim. So then the question is simply, do you believe the Bible is true? That's the question. It is not a question of interpretation. It is a question of faith. Right now, uh, you... You sit with the Bible in front of you, the numbers in front of you, 
written out. You know, you, you got Adam. He was this old when he had this son. Who was this old when he had this son? That it's this unbroken chronology from Adam all the way down to Jesus. And then Jesus, we know, was 2,000 years ago. There's no dispute over how long it's been from us to Jesus. No dispute on how long it's been from Jesus even to Abraham. Abraham to Adam? Now all the Christians go, wait a minute, well, let's just stuff 300,000 more years into there somewhere and say that uh, the human race has has been around for 300,000 years. That's frustrating. That's not frustrating, it's stupid. Dare I say. Genesis 5 says the exact year in an unbroken chronology. There is no reason to say you need to stuff 300,000 years into there. That is the definition of eisegesis, where you're taking meaning that you're just going to say, this is true. Then you read the Bible and go, no, the Bible means what I think. And you just inject your meaning into there. How are we supposed to understand these early genealogies? Some people do argue that there are gaps in the genealogy in in Genesis 5. Right? They say, like, okay, it it says father to son, father to son, father to son, right? But they say, well, it's kind of missing some names in there, maybe. So it's, it's longer than... Uh, than you know the the thing that we think it's, it's more than 1,656 years. Uh, you're missing some names in there, so it should be longer than that. They they say that there are gaps in other biblical genealogies, right? Exodus six, Ezra seven. You have uh, you have genealogies there where there are gaps in them, where like it says this guy fathered this guy, but it like skips a couple of the ancestors. Matthew one actually does that too. Matthew one in the genealogy genealogy of Jesus skips a few names. And that was a normal practice in, in Hebrew culture. Like when they write a genealogy, they didn't have to write every single name. Sometimes they would skip, you know, the ones that were kind of like in their minds unimportant, right? And just use the significant figures. The word translated fathered uh, can demonstrate ancestral links. It, it can mean like, you know, if, if that's my father, you can mean that he's my dad or you could mean that's my ancestor, my, my great-granddad, great-great-great-great-granddad. That's, that's one of my father's. So that's why they would refer to Abraham as Father Abraham. He wasn't their biological dad. He was their their distant ancestor. But they all came from him. So Father Abraham. Um, An example of this is in Matthew chapter 1, verse 9. It says, Uzziah, or Azariah, fathered Jotham, which is true, but it's actually that uh, Azariah, or Uzziah, uh, had three, three descendants before Jotham is born. Right? There are three, three names missing, three kings who live between them. Um, Ahaziah, uh, Ahaziah, or I'm not sure how to say that, but uh, he reigned one year in 2 Kings 8.26. Joash reigned 40 years in 2 Kings 12.2. And Amaziah, 21 years in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 2. So Jothan would be a, a distant relative of Uzziah, not a direct son, and yet he's listed next in the genealogy. You see three, three kings skip there. The, the lists in Genesis 5 and 11, they seem too symmetrical, too deliberately arranged as an aid to memory because, you know, they both have 10 names and they each end with a, a key figure who had three sons. Genesis 5 ends with Noah and his three sons and Genesis 11 ends with Terah and his three sons. So it feels like, oh, it's too poetic. It's too, too balanced and stuff. And so they say because of that, the genealogies must not be accurate. And the allowance of gaps in the genealogies after the flood would push the event back hundreds of years and perhaps thousands of years. This would better harmonize with archaeological data for an earlier flood date and all this kind of stuff. And what, what we try to do, what we see people doing, is uh, they start stuffing numbers into there and stuffing uh, these phantom names and phantom people in there, saying, like, 
there must have been more people. There must have been because it just seems too nice and tidy. And I don't like the fact that it sounds like the earth is so young. But even if the genealogies are filled with gaps, there must be a couple things that you remember. Okay? First, that the other gaps in Scripture are not thousands of years long. Right? An example is Exodus 6, verse 20. The longest possible gap is 300 years. That's the longest gap between the, you know, this guy fathered this guy and it skips 300 years in between. In 1 Chronicles 26, 24, a 400-year period is skipped over. So that's the longest one over there. In Matthew 1, uh, the, uh, the gaps don't uh, cover an extensive amount of time. There are 42 names from Abraham to Christ that are listed in Matthew. This covers a period of 2,000 years. Only three kings are missing. Right, Those three that I mentioned. The total amount of years of their reign is only 70. So any gap of time would be relatively small. If we put large gaps here, think, uh, we're not thinking biblically. Right? There's no way we can get millions of years that modern science requires for the beginning of mankind. There's no, there's no way we could do that. And there's no reason to do that. There is no reason to assume that evolution must be true. And so mankind has to be the result of billions of years of natural selection. Furthermore, gaps in genealogies are the exceptions rather than the rule. Right? The, when you look at how many years a, a genealogy covers, there might be gaps, but those are exceptions. That's not the majority of the case. That's not most of this time frame is gaps. In Matthew, only one out of uh, uh, only three of those kings are missing, and then you have all the other names. Right? Therefore, it, it, it's not good to presume hundreds of thousands of years of gaps. Don't throw that into, into any of the genealogies. Don't throw that into Genesis 5. Genesis 5 gives you the exact numbers of when people were born. It's very difficult to prove what got left out. If you say there are missing names, there are gaps in the genealogy, the burden of proof is now on you. How do you prove that? How do you prove that the author skipped names? Go ahead and try. Which names did he skip? How many? You can't prove it. Because the, the author, you know, if he's going to skip something, he's going to skip the, the names that we know of. We know when he skips names. Those who argue that Genesis 5 is a complete genealogy, a trustworthy genealogy without any gaps, they bring up a number of reasons why they hold this view. And I think these are good reasons, right? The first is that the year of the man's life are specified both at the time he fathered the next important guy and the exact number of years he lived after the event, right? So it's difficult to insert gaps that would break the natural chain of thought. Good luck doing that. Second, the genealogy begins and ends with direct sons. Adam had a son named Seth in verse 3 of Genesis 5. And Noah had a son named Shem, verse 32. This indicates that the others should be understood in their immediate father-son relationship as well. For example, Seth, who was born to Adam and Eve, was a direct son. Right? He, he, he had a son, and he had a son, and you just follow that. The same is true in chapter 11. That genealogy closes with Terah finding, uh, fathering three sons, including uh, Abraham. These are all direct sons. In light of their father-son links, it seems that one is arbitrarily reading into the text to assume a wider meaning of, of fathering at that point. If you say that he's not really the dad, he's like the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. Like how, how would you know that? What would make you say that? The text indicates contextually that this is a father-son relationship and gives you the number of years. Third, 
and final is that. Though it's true that gaps exist in other biblical genealogies, they are different uh, in, in a different class than the Genesis 5 genealogy, right? They, they don't, uh, they're not valid analogies for proving a point in Genesis 5. Genesis 5 gives you the exact numbers. Other genealogies often don't. The Matthew one doesn't give you exact numbers, but we know that that's accurate. So this list is unique in that it states years both at the time of fathering and also afterwards. And you, you got so much exact data that for you to say that there's something missing there is something wrong, you'd have to prove where the error is. Or you just have to say that this is fiction. It's not poetry. It's not symbolism. It's not just being artistic. It, the, the actual word that's used at the beginning of Genesis 5, these are the records, the genealogies, records. It's the same thing. It, it means that this is the actual documented information. It is trustworthy to be factual. It is the record or the genealogy. Therefore, if the genealogy in Genesis 5 does not give you a reason to think that there are gaps, then it's unreasonable to insert them. What, what, what does that mean for us? Well, it, it simply means that the Bible means what it says. It means that the, the earth is not billions of years old. It means that mankind is not 300,000 years old. But that history began at Adam approximately 6,000 years ago. Five days before that is when the universe began. That's what the Bible says. So I guess the question just comes down to whether or not you believe it. Let's pray. Father, this is a, a huge uh, amount of information to just drop on our minds right now. And for some, it might be very surprising and feel very unfamiliar. The shock of it might, uh, might be a little numbing. Because what do you do when you've been growing up thinking the earth is billions of years old and you just find out the Bible makes a completely different claim? And so we pray, Lord, that this would rattle us down to the core to make us stand in conviction on whether or not we believe the Bible is true. I know there are a lot of Christians that haven't studied this, haven't really put it to, uh, in, into their minds to figure this stuff out. And so you can be wrong on this issue, and it's not a salvation issue, but Lord, I know that this is also an expression of our trust in you. This is, this is a moment to display what we really think about what you said. And when you wrote down the numbers and gave it to us, either we think that you're telling the truth or we think you're telling a lie. Our regard for your word is revealed here. And so we pray, Lord, that we would believe you, believe your word, believe from the beginning, from Adam all the way till now. We have much to discuss, so many more questions, and so make us patient and uh, bring us back to talk further and learn more and put our understanding to the test. Do it so that at the end of it, we can stand with greater trust in all you've said. We pray all this for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.